Hello, hello, this is Caleb, and welcome to The Case for Spiritual Gifts. I am here with a very special guest, Ralph Weinstock. How are you doing today, Ralph? Hey, Caleb. Nice to be here with you. Thank you. And thank you well. for being here. Well, today's a big one. Today we're talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the different views on it. We will discuss sensationism, the view that the gifts have ceased, and continuationism, the view that the gifts continue today. And we're going to start our journey with the Old Testament. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He has no beginning and no end. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would temporarily dwell within someone and empower them to do great feats. We see this with Othniel in Judges 3, Gideon in Judges 6, Samson in Judges 14, and Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2. So... In Isaiah 11, there's a prophecy about Jesus 700 years before he is born. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So that's a great description of the Holy Spirit that is from the Old Testament. So two of these attributes, wisdom and knowledge, are seen later when we get to the gifts. So let's look at this verse. The Messiah will come from the line of Jesse, who is the father of King David. This prophecy demonstrates that during his earthly ministry, Jesus was uniquely empowered by the Holy Spirit for his ministry, teaching, and miracles. All right. So how did that actually happen i mean i know we know about it through john and all that and but what was mm-hmm. how did that where how do we see that happening that jesus was filled with the holy spirit yeah i mean what what's happening there i mean i i would think since jesus was essentially fathered by the spirits um he was filled with the holy spirit since birth would be my guess but it's it's mysterious. We definitely know by the time he's baptized, boom, the spirit is there with him. Uh, is this, That's true. What yeah. I'm really getting at is the Holy Spirit was no doubt from birth mm-hmm. in the womb and everything. That God was never separated from the... God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son were never yeah. separated. Jesus demonstrates that both at um, when he's 12 and also yeah. what, at, the, mm-hmm. what, at the wedding in Cana. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just, I think he's, it looks to me like he's doing it to celebrate or, or to declare it publicly to get things rolling. What, what do you yeah. say? I would agree with you. And one example where it's just explicitly stated is in Luke 4, 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So Jesus always filled with the Spirit, but here we're saying he's now led by the Spirit for a certain purpose in his ministry. Okay. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit and performed many miracles. In addition, Jesus empowered the disciples with authority to perform miracles. And I want to talk about that a little later when you get to John. (laughs) Go ahead. Okay. Well, so Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. 
Now, the reason I bring this up, because this foreshadows the spiritual gifts that arrive later and shows consistency between the works of Jesus and the works of the Spirit. So we're going to see a lot of that back and forth comparison. Jesus doing works and then the Holy Spirit doing works. Now, the final Old Testament example I'm bringing up is from Ezekiel 36.27, where God prophesies, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. This is a function of the Holy Spirit that we see fulfilled later in the New Testament. Okay, now we're going to move forward in time. All right. Are you ready? Yeah. To a story I really like, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. So now it's, it's getting good, Ralph. God tells Elizabeth that she will conceive a child named John. In Luke 1.15, God says, He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So yeah. <laughs> what's the deal there? I mean, because in order to be filled with the Spirit as humans, we mm-hmm. need to have an a knowledge of who God is, and then we're then filled according to Scripture. But this was foretold beforehand, and where did that come from? But obviously, God well, John, had this plan. Yeah, John is, is you know selected and set aside for this purpose of ushering in the Messiah, okay. and that you just it shows that how active the Spirit was in the ministry of Jesus, to where even John, who is the prophet that baptizes him and announces well, him. Well, he proceeds with the in every way. He proceeds and sets the stage. But that, yeah, that yeah. was totally, uh, that's why Jesus himself, yeah. I guess, later on says there, you know, John is the greatest prophet of all yeah. that have come before. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, John's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were filled with the spirit before John was born. Luke 141 when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Wow. Wow. That's pretty good. So we're seeing a couple of things here. One, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. And then she has the supernatural prophecy that Mary will be the mother of the Lord. Mm-hmm. She has this knowledge that comes from God. And I'm tying this to we read later that the primary indicator that the Spirit is from God is that the Spirit testifies that Jesus is Lord. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall doing that. <laughs> and the Spirit's doing that here. I mean, because you know, testifying. The, the most important words of scripture are laid down there but i would just love to have heard the mm-hmm. whole development of that story yeah right there yeah, on a the very spot. significant story yeah yeah so first god makes a prophecy and then elizabeth through the holy spirit makes a prophecy this foreshadows the spiritual gift of prophecy so we're seeing these early well, prophecies so are you going to get into the difference between a prophet and a prophecy in here somewhere yes i have a whole section on prophecy because yeah, there were prophets, no. but this is not what you're saying. This no. is just about seeing that there's going to be prophecy as a spiritual gift in the New Testament. Is that right? Is that what I'm understanding? Um, yes, I do get more into prophecy um, in that section. But yes, this is different than Ezekiel making that prophecy. 
Uh, or Isaiah. So you're, no, yeah, you're yeah, going to develop a different that more. Than Isaiah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when Jesus was on earth, there was no need for the spirit to dwell with man because Jesus was dwelling with man. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is and Jesus was with man. Okay. Now we jump to John 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. A very popular story. This was Jesus' biggest miracle to date, demonstrating power and authority over death. Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. What does that mean? Well, I think it's foreshadowing that the reason the Spirit empowers believers to do signs and wonders is always for God's glory. He's uh, he's setting a stage even to show how he uses healing. Yeah. It's not perhaps just, you know, I want this car and it's not that at all. It's always that the that God's son may be glorified through it. He's using healing in that way. Certainly mm-hmm. Jesus is throughout his whole ministry. You never really see him, if anything, we see him yeah. uh, forgiving sin over worrying about whether somebody's actually healed, but he does it to demonstrate, like it says here, God's son may be glorified through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. So, drawing this comparison in Acts 9, Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. News of this miracle spread all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. These miracles are done to bring glory to God. And that reason still applies today. So, in John 14, Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. May, may I interrupt you here? You may. Okay, so I don't want to take away from the whole context of that scripture because so I want to be careful. Mm-hmm. But I, so often people have said, well, what did he mean greater than these things you're going to do? And so it's an issue of quantity versus quality, right? Yes. And I think some people look at it as, well, it's quality. Uh, but how can you how can you do better than raise three people from the dead and resurrect and wipe out all <laughs> sin for eternity, past, present, and future? How can you do better quality work than that and then the quantity well we can justify the quantity a little easier because you know the the the, both the apostles and then later believers it shows in scripture went to all the ends of the earth baptizing people in the name of jesus right so they Mm -hmm. did quantitatively way more jesus was there three three and a half years but look at the church today there's billions right billions of people served now Mm-hmm. How about that it can be both quantity and quality? Because the quality is that, and I think it's something you've brought up to me recently that made me think of that, about that too, Caleb. The quality is that believers, later on, they get, after Acts 2, what you mm-hmm. just brought up, they get empowered with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, And I think you're going to get into that. Mm-hmm. They get empowered, and that is a greater uh, level of intimacy 
with God than even the the disciples had direct intimacy with Jesus. But now they can bring all their prayers because of the work that Jesus did. Yeah. In his resurrection. 24-7. Yeah. Because of the resurrection, Mm. now and because of the Holy Spirit, we now have the vehicle where we can come right to the throne room of God with all of our needs and prayers. And that's greater quality than they had when even when Jesus was there. Greater things. So that these, close intimacy yeah. with the Spirit. Yeah. So I think yeah. it kind of hits quality and quantity on that one. A lot of people bring that up. How, how could it be more? Also, I'd like to point out, Jesus says, the works I have been doing, this is before the death and resurrection. No one can beat the atonement of sin, past, present, and future, right? So he's talking about signs and wonders and miracles and... Um, not the death and resurrection. So the works of Jesus include signs, wonders, and miracles. There are many examples of this. Jesus and Peter both raised someone from the dead, like we just saw. How is this possible? It's through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry was unique and unparalleled. He did things no other person has ever done. What does Jesus mean by greater works? To your point... 3,000 people were saved on the day of Pentecost. It refers to global impact. Jesus ministered to a local region during his earthly ministry. But with the Holy Spirit, his followers would take the gospel to all nations. The signs and wonders that people experienced had an expansive global impact, which you so eloquently... Yeah, it looks like I rained on your parade. I'm very sorry for that. (laughs) No, it's okay. It's It's exactly what you were going to say. And so that's evidence also of... The greater works is that we have the same spirit dwelling within us right here in this room yeah. as the people might be hearing this and all the believers around the world. Absolutely. So in verse 15, Jesus continues, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So let's break this down a little. Jesus says, keep my commands. Well, where are these commands? Well, Jesus summarized the law as love God and love your neighbor. So that's probably a good indication. The Holy Spirit's going to help believers keep those commands. Right. Yeah. Jesus says he will give you another advocate. Well, who's the first advocate? These are the questions I ask myself when I'm reading. Well, Jesus himself is the first advocate. The Spirit is called the advocate because he continues Jesus' redemptive work by empowering believers to live transformed lives. So are you saying that Jesus is really the the first advocate and then you're referring to another advocate as the Holy Spirit? Is that what you're saying here? Oh, okay. That makes it more clear for me. So what's good? Oh, and the reason he's telling him this here is why? Um, I think to prepare them that Jesus is going away. And this is the... But don't worry, because he's going to send the Spirit. So the, the work will continue. The Spirit provides help, counsel, guidance, and comfort. He acts as the bridge between people and God, communicating our needs, prayers, and concerns to God. So I was trying to explore the word advocate a little bit there. Jesus says the Spirit will be with you forever. Now, I find this interesting, Ralph. God's design was for believers to go through life with this helper, the Spirit. 
A person receives the Holy Spirit the moment they are saved through faith in Christ. At that moment, a person becomes a new creation. The Holy Spirit moves into their heart, and the journey of sanctification begins. The Spirit helps the believer to walk in God's ways. The Spirit was sent to continue the work that Jesus began, and the Spirit will be with believers forever. The gifts of the Spirit wasn't just for the early church, it was for all believers forever. Okay, so in verse 25, um, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send into my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Is that just to the apostles or future believers, or how do we know who that's for? Who the Spirit is for? Yeah, well, we know the Spirit's ending up going to be for, for everybody. For all believers? Yeah. Yeah. For the church, essentially. Okay. Yeah. Um, we'll teach you all things. We'll remind you of everything I've said to you. Um, and I find this is interesting because the writing of the New Testament captures so many testimonies mm-hmm. over so much time period. How did they remember all these amazing stories for and, and you know they captured different one each one of the gospel writers maybe captured it slightly differently but they remembered so much of what happened you know when i meet somebody and i even mm-hmm. if i spend time with them i may remember a story or two but i'm not going to remember the details that these guys wrote down meticulously and that they yeah. they they vibe with each other typically they harmony harmonious harmoniously work yeah. together well, I think the Spirit was very much leading them in their writing to include these details, you know, for future generations. Um, so we see here with the teach all things remind you, it is through the Spirit that we can understand the spiritual teachings and mysteries of God's Word. Okay, that's important. The Spirit does this through revelation. Proverbs 3, 5 instructs us to not lean on our own understanding, right? That's not enough. The Bible is divinely authored by God and requires spiritual insights. The same spirit who inspired the writers also helps believers understand them. Even with the completion of biblical canon, we still need the spirit to interpret the meaning correctly. Our own understanding is enough. Okay. For example, I'll use an extreme example of misinterpretation. During the American Civil War, some slaveholders used the Bible to justify and defend slavery. Well, it's like today. I mean, there's people using the Bible all day long to justify whatever they want to say. But cherry-picking, yeah. of course, not leaving it in context. Or, would you agree with that? No, That's kind absolutely. of what I see. Yeah. Okay. And so we need the Spirit to discern when we hear that interpretation. Um, is that consistent with the Word and with God's character and everything else? Um Different interpretations have also led to the creation of different denominations. And I'll give the biggest example I can think of. The primary divide between Catholics and Protestants is based on their different interpretation of Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Okay. Yeah, well, I guess we could argue that there's several different <laughs> scriptures. Like, yeah, yeah but, right, exactly. that's a good yeah. one. That's a good one. That's one of the big ones. Of yeah, it really is. All the different interpretations of that. And it, you know, it is really interesting. The Bible is written like 66 books, right? There, yeah. The 39, 27, mm-hmm. old, new, and so it's amazing how it harmoniously 
I used that word earlier, sorry. Yeah. But it, it just pulls these stories together. They're more cohesive, not less cohesive, yet they're written in all these different eras yeah. and and separate from one another, not sitting in the same room. Okay, what do you want to say? What do you want to say? It's And they come together like a cohesive novel or just really yeah. gel. And they tell a very, very succinct story about yeah. the, the, the Messiah. Which supports this idea that God is ultimately the the author. All right, so Acts two, the day of Pentecost. Here we are, Ralph. We're here on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit descended on the disciples like a violent wind. Quote: All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Acts two four. Mm. The crowd had two rea- reactions to this. Some were amazed by this miracle. And some were making jokes that the disciples were drunk because they spoke another language. Now, to me, this also tells me that just because someone sees a miracle doesn't mean they will believe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some people just aren't sheep, you know. Okay. Verse 14, Ralph. Peter says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So then Peter quotes Joel 2, 28 through 32. Okay. This is a critical passage. This is very interesting. So we're going to go through it step by step. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Let's stop there, Ralph. All right. What does the last days refer to? Well... I believe last days refers to the church age. It begins with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and ends with the second coming of Christ after tribulation. It is the period of time when believers wait for Jesus' return. This is a key argument for continuationism. If we are still in the last days, then the spiritual gifts are still being poured out. That's a good argument right there. Because, you know, which gifts are not are pulled away and which ones are still in play. You can't make that argument yeah. from a cessationist standpoint. You, you have to choose which ones are still here and which ones yeah. aren't. I would say none of them were pulled away. I Not agree completely. with you. So, and then we have the, the term all people, right? The term all people means that the spirit will be available to people from all backgrounds, nations, and ethnicities. Not just the Jews, so... That's foreshadowing that this is what's coming, all people. Okay, verse 18. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Prophecy is so important, it's mentioned twice. Mm -hmm. At this point, Joel could be talking about any time post-Pentecost, right, which begins the church age. But in verse 19, there's a shift happening. And Joel specifically references the tribulation period. Well, here it looks like at verse 18, during you're saying it's during the tribulation period? No, I'm saying starting with verse 19, yeah. it's clearly about tribulation. Okay. Yeah. 18 is happening before. In the, yeah, in the no, church I get age. it. Eight, 18 and yeah. 19 is post. Yeah. So let's see what happens yeah, at verse 19. That's a whole other area, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get into tonight. Okay. Oh, well, we might be. Okay, so let's see what happens in verse 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. 
Okay. Okay. So I look at this. This is similar to the plagues of Egypt. Both are examples of divine judgment, which indicates that it's the tribulation period. Both involve the land and air. Moses and the Israelites were led by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. These were signs of God's presence. Verse 20. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. You're referring to this future time. I'm still with you, right? Okay. Yes. And we see this also in Revelation. So the sun will be turned to darkness. The moon will turn blood red. We see this prophecy again in Revelation 6.12. Four. The, before the great day of the Lord. So really, we don't have to worry. Yeah. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, people talk all the time, oh, is, is it the end times? Is it the end times? We haven't seen the great day of the Lord yet. We haven't no. seen, like, there another, you know, Daniel refers to the abomination of desolation happening first. We haven't seen that yet either. Why is everybody worried? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we should be aware. But why are right. we worried? Yeah. Because those two things clearly haven't happened yet, so we know it's not here right now. Yeah, Hurricane Hillary was not it. Darn. That was not. That it. Was, I had, <laughs> I had good money on that. I'm sorry, no, it actually gets worse than Hurricane Hillary. Um, but so let's look at this in, in Revelation six twelve. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. So we're seeing that consistency between Joel and Revelation, talking about the same mm-hmm. events. Okay. This happens before the day of the Lord, like you just said. In historical premillennialism, the day of the Lord refers to the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, and the establishments of Christ's millennial kingdom on earth. And finally, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This verse reminds us that salvation is by faith in Jesus alone and not by works, which is the major theme of the New Testament, in my opinion. This would have been a foreign concept for Joel, who was living under Mosaic law. So I know that seems like a bit of a tangent, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Well, it seems like he's talking about a future time for sure, because it transcends how God called the Jewish nation altogether. This is uh, this was a calling regardless of what you said. Mm-hmm. But here, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So it's an act... Uh, yes. A voluntary act on a person's part to, to do that. That's Absolutely. different. All right, so now we're going to get into the gifts, probably our biggest passage here, 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul teaches about spiritual gifts. Verse 3, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So no, wait a minute. What does that mean, though? Because, like, I've heard a lot of people just say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, you know, are they... Well, that's different than Jesus that is mean? Lord. Jesus is Lord. So you're saying, like, and mean it, Jesus is Lord? Or just, like, can they say the words, like a like a magic incantation mm-hmm. that they don't believe in? Can people do that, I wonder? Well, I think Jesus is Lord... Um, is a revelation to understand that and believe that. Oh, you mean like Matthew? Remember at the Last Supper, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. Is that the yeah, Last Supper? Yeah, to Peter. Supper? He says yeah. it's Peter. Peter. Yeah. 
And in the book, yeah, and he says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. That came mm. from, you know, they came from the Holy Spirit. It came from the Holy Spirit, yeah. Uh, yeah, I believe that same principle applies. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's look at this. Paul says that the number one way to determine that the Spirit is from God is that the Spirit will testify that Jesus is Lord. Okay. This is consistent with John 15, 26, when Jesus says that the Spirit will testify of me. Okay. okay. So, verse 7. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Let's stop there. The common good refers to the church. The purpose of the gifts is to build up the church and serve God's people. We will see that throughout. Okay. Verse 8, the big passage. To one there is given, through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, as he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Wow. Mm. All right, so we're going to break this down in a lot of detail. Verse 11, first of all, reminds us that the Spirit is a person, and it is he who distributes the gifts to us. So in this passage, Paul outlines nine spiritual gifts. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. Overview. How do these supernatural gifts work? Well, the gifts are given by the Spirit to certain people in certain circumstances. Wait, you don't just get one gift and you always have it? No, I think using the gifts um, has to be a circumstance that the Spirit wills the gift to be used in that circumstance. So like healing. So the gifts cannot be accessed by will alone, but rather the believer should pray to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, now we're going to go through the nine gifts, Ralph. Are you ready for this excitement? Okay, so... What's behind door number one? It is word of wisdom and word of knowledge. And we're looking at them together because words of wisdom and words of knowledge and prophecy are closely related because they involve divine insight or revelation about something. They're all messages from the spirits, but they're different types of messages. Okay. So we'll define some terms, word of wisdom, the spirit revealing the practical decisions that need to be made in light of a particular circumstance. Yeah, example. We'll get to some examples, yes. Okay. Word of knowledge, the spirit revealing to you certain information about a person or situation you would not know otherwise. Okay. Now, Paul doesn't go into a lot of detail explaining the differences between the two. Uh, and there's a lot of crossover as well. But we will look at some examples. So starting with the wisdom. The wisdom of Jesus often went against conventional wisdom. Jesus taught that true greatness is being a servant. If you want to be a great king, be a great servant. Jesus was the king of kings, yet he washed feet. Jesus elevated people in low status positions. The last will be first. He taught that true greatness is being dependent upon God. The child is the greatest in the kingdom. 
So that's just an example of Jesus' wisdom. All right, and I mean, that came up. So what about Solomon's wisdom? Did he have any reflection of this? No, no, wait, what about, wasn't it Solomon, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't it Solomon that um, had to decide between the two women who said, this is my baby? Oh, yeah, yeah. And they said, well, just cut the baby in half and you each take half. Yeah, and what do you think about that? Was that an example, a word of, of wisdom, a gift of wisdom or not? And what did it resolve? No, it's definitely an example of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of reveals yeah. the true heart motives behind this person. That's supernaturally. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Okay, great. So now word of knowledge. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the disciples to preach to the governors and kings. Verse 19. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? I don't want to get off track, but it's right on line with this. Some I of the, like uh, Some of the martyrs have been brought before kings or people that are going, about to kill them. And they came in there shaking in their boots. But as they gave testimony, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they knew exactly what to say. I mean, we yeah. also think about that with how about Daniel when he was asked to, you know, talk about the dream. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it takes a tremendous Absolutely. supernatural yeah. feeling to get that knowledge that he didn't have walking into that room. Yeah. No, those are very good examples of this, you know. So in, in this example, the Spirit is providing a word of knowledge to the disciples, in this case, the knowledge of what to say if they are arrested. Okay, number three, faith. Um, now, in this example, the gift of faith is not a saving faith. There are different kinds of faith. What do you mean? Because this gift of faith is not the faith in Jesus that saves you and gives you salvation. Um, many of the Old Testament heroes were great men of faith, but not always morality. By the time we get to the Pharisees, it's the opposite. They are men of morality who keep the law, but not men of faith. Jesus repeatedly taught the importance of faith. When the woman touched his clothes, the woman who was sick for 12 years with something, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. So there's this emphasis on faith. The gift of faith is having extraordinary confidence and trust in God's ability, plan, and providence. Moses had faith God would part the Red Sea. Peter had faith he could walk on water. The Roman centurion had faith that Jesus could heal his servant just by speaking. And Jesus replied, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So faith often works in conjunction with the other gifts. So like the woman at the well, I mean the woman who touched his cloak, right? Yeah. She had this tremendous confidence that he, she'd seen him, must have seen or heard of him. And she touched it. She just thought, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be healed. I'll be made well. Yeah. And yeah, and then Jesus felt power go out of him and into her, and she was instantly healed. So that's what you mean by faith there, huh? Yeah. It's, it, it's just a confidence, yeah. a supernatural confidence that trusting in God yeah. is going to get me out of this predicament or whatever it is. Yeah, you believe 100%. 
But yes, you can't conjure that either. It's something that you just know that you know. That's a gift of faith, as opposed yeah, to just the spirit having, leads you in the faith. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to just saying, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna have faith. I'm gonna have faith. I'm gonna have faith." It's like those are just words. That's not a genuine supernatural conviction of your inward being. And is is that different? Just saying that you have faith versus that supernatural well, yeah. that she had. Am I losing well, you there? <laughs> is it different? <laughs> well, it sounds like just saying you have faith is insincere. <laughs> but but she had a sincerely belief. No, no, there's a lot of put... people today, though, that are just, you know, <laughs> walking around that say, if you just say these words, then God's going to yeah. have to respond. So, anyway, go ahead. Okay, number four. Gifts of healings, your favorite. <laughs> you brought up. Um, the gifts of healings operate in a specific way like we said it is granted to certain people in certain circumstances as the spirit determines this is key rough this is why paul heals some people and not others he is subject to the will of the spirits paul is the vessel through whom the spirit operates each gift of healing is a one and done situation there's no guarantee it will ever happen again Later on, we encounter gifts that are more permanent and residential, like teaching, but healing isn't one of them. It's not done according to our will, because the Spirit wills. Acts 14 gives us another example of faith and healing going together. Verse 18, In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. So Paul observes and through the Spirit recognizes that he had the faith, this guy had a faith to be healed. Mm -hmm. He just looked at him and he saw that. So that yeah. was a supernatural revelation to Paul in addition to this guy having the confidence that Paul... Yeah. Could heal. And the Spirit gave Paul a gift of healing for that circumstance with that man. So it was, yeah, okay. Yeah. It was both both sides had, God, it's like God uh, took that guy who had this supernatural confidence that he had a faith to be healed. Mm -hmm. He gave him that supernatural confidence. Somehow, he yeah. knew it. And then Paul saw that, and then he responded because the Holy Spirit revealed that. So they kind of worked in harmony yeah, that they way. Worked in harmony. But God, the Holy absolutely. Spirit, was behind both sides of the coin. Yes, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> I get it now. Yeah, he's very consistent that way. Number five, working of miracles. Now, all nine of these gifts mentioned are miraculous. So Paul must have something specific in mind okay. when he talks about miracles. Examples of miracles include Peter raising Tabitha from the dead, Paul casting out demons, and Paul making a sorcerer go blind. Those are all miraculous. Um, Jesus' miracles, very well known. He performed many, including turning water into wine, multiplying food, manifesting money, calming the storm, and cursing a fig tree. Yeah. Yeah. The word miracle is very encompassing in this context. Like the gifts of healing, the Spirit grants certain miracles to certain individuals on certain occasions. Okay. okay. So you're saying it's conditional. It's it's based entirely on... It sounds to me like you're saying that it's based... God initiates it and then... 
We yeah. act on it. If the miracle is casting out a demon, I'm not saying, oh, that means that person can do it in every circumstance they pray to. But cast wait a out minute, demons. you know, we also do see Jesus asking the Father if he can do this or that, like, um, you know, probably asking when he cast out the de- casting out the demons in the pigs. He, when Jesus is found praying. He's in the trans. Mm-hmm. Transfiguration, right the night before, he's turned over. Um, you know, he, it's right then he's talking to God and he's saying, "If this cup would pass, and I know." Mm-hmm. Essentially, we can through prayer. Am I right? We can talk to God and ask Him if He's going to heal this person in this moment. At yep. the same time, if we don't hear it, um, do we just? stop doing what we're doing and just move on or if we do hear it we start praying for them what do you what how does that work you'd have to see how the spirit leads if if there's another circuit you know maybe you pray for a demon to get cast out and it doesn't happen it doesn't mean you never pray for it again or ask it again parallel wise it seems like we're to go to god first before even praying for somebody to see if he's, you know, where the, yeah. where he's moving, discernment, praying that we might interpret what he's saying. Yeah, absolutely. And then go do it if if that's something that he's calling us to do. I, I mean, I've known people. Here's mm-hmm. two two sides of the same coin. I'm going to let you. This is your show, but <laughs> I do think this is important. Two different people. One, this guy uh, gets asked to pray. For this woman he doesn't even know and he comes into the room and he's praying for her healing she's on death row deathbed and he mm-hmm. gets a sense this is a pastor that i've uh, been listening to and he gets a sense that god is going to heal this woman and lo and behold he heals her of i believe it was cancer and in fact i know now it was cancer and she, it never came back to her and she never died of cancer in the second situation he was asked to go pray for you know, he or yeah, family members asked him to come pray for his mom. And as he's praying for his mom or grandma, I believe it was grandma on her deathbed, he already had a sense that no, God is done with her and he's going to take her home. And so he continued to pray, but he already knew. It, it, did he not have faith in the second and he had faith in the first situation? What What's that about? It's not for us to decide who gets healed and who doesn't. Okay, right. So, like, it, you yeah. can be confident when you're praying that if God's leading you... I mean, I don't even know if... He just went ahead and prayed anyway because he was asked to in that first one. But then in that, he got a word of knowledge that God was going to heal her. Yeah. In the second situation, he was asked to pray, and he did anyway. But in that word of knowledge, he got the sense... He didn't broadcast, stop, what, uh, okay, yeah. I'm not going to pray for you. He just got the sense that God was done with her, taking yeah. her home. No, I, th- I think... There's a lot of um, miracles around financial provision. Um, there's a recent example of I was praying for financial provision, and then the next day uh, I get a letter in the mail that I'm getting another tax refund, that the first refund, they owed me more money. So I got two uh, tax how refunds. Many, how many countries are you citizens of? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Just one, the U.S. of A. Okay, prophecy. So this is a big one. In the Bible, there are different types of prophets. 
Biblical prophets were chosen by God to write the canon of Scripture. That's one type. Since the canon of Scripture is complete, there are no more biblical prophets. It seems like most of the writers were inspired, but they weren't all telling prophecy, were they? In the Bible in general. There was other stories in there that didn't relate to prophecy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, I'm talking it's about the not... ones who are prophets. Oh, okay. So if, if I have a prophecy that God tells me, it doesn't mean I'm adding a page to the back of the Bible. Now there's another page. Like, no, the canon is complete. I'm not a biblical prophet. So even though there are no more biblical prophets, there still is prophecy as evidence in the gifts. And scripture is the standard we test modern prophecy against. Okay. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. It's one of my favorite scriptures. Yeah, it's a great one. It's, it's a great instruction. Because um, there will always be human error regarding prophecy. We can get it wrong. That's why we test it. These instructions, hold on to what is good, reject what is evil. False prophecy. You got it wrong. But don't reject prophecy completely because that quenches the spirit. There are prophets in the Bible who did not write the canon of scripture. Philip's four daughters were prophets, but we don't have a record of their prophecy. But they still have the spiritual gift of prophecy. Modern day prophecy does not compromise the finality of scripture. The Bible doesn't state that prophecy is a threat to the sufficiency of Scripture. So in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Verse 3, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. So this is good because the primary purpose of prophecy is to strengthen, encourage, and comfort the church. Okay. That list Paul gives. It's not for predicting or foretelling in the sense of biblical prophets. But God can do that if he desires to. That's not really the prophecy Paul's talking about. Okay. All right, number seven. Discernment of spirits. The supernatural ability to perceive and understand the spiritual influences and forces in the world. Pentecost opened the floodgates to spiritual gifts. Discernment is used to identify the spirit behind supernatural phenomena, such as dreams, visions, miracles, and prophecies. Supernatural phenomena are either from God or from the devil. The spirit can also determine if something is spiritual or human-created. We're talking like frauds and hucksters and those kind of people. There's a lot of warning against deception here. Paul says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Okay, so what's the difference between just like normal human discernment and spiritual discernment? Well, I mean, spiritual discernment is about spiritual matters. Okay. So if you don't know Jesus, does 
How do you, can you discern spiritually at that point? Right. And discernment of a sort is still possible. There's lots of non-believers who would not play with a Ouija board just to be safe. Because they think, well, it's possible there could be some demonic something that I don't want to mess with. So they have some in their consciousness, some sort of discernment. Oh, now you're getting into general revelation versus super... Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that all of nature even teaches it and says that, that all of people teaches there's something out there. And if you're paying attention to it, you, yeah. you, it's going to lead you eventually down the right road. Yeah. So for some examples, of psychics, mediums, fortune tellers, astrology, witchcraft. At best, these people are hucksters and frauds. At worst, they are demonically influenced. In Acts 16, Paul encounters a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Paul then rebuked the demon out of her. So there might be psychics. They can legitimately predict the future. They have some supernatural ability. But by which spirit is granted them that ability? Yeah, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us what she predicted either. But uh, yeah, No, but she it, made a lot of money doing it. Ah, uh, yeah. There you go. And that's she what, was a slave, so her, her masters were yeah, making, making money, off, money her. off of that. Right. Yeah. In Matthew 7, Jesus says to watch out for false and prophets. they must have really been upset with... With Paul. <laughs> with Paul, because, man, they just lost their big money maker. I know. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so more discernment. In Matthew 7, Jesus says to watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So you have to discern that. Peter warns that there will be false teachers among you who will introduce heresies into the church. In Second Peter. You can test the spirits by studying the word and asking God for discernment, spiritual discernment. If the spirits aren't from God, they are from the devil. So that's discernment. Uh, so eight and nine, we'll, we'll look at together, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Okay. Okay. One of the big ones. The Greek word for tongue is glossa, which means language. So tongues is a language. Speaking in tongues means speaking in different kinds of languages. These are human languages. When Paul says... Are they... They're all human languages, huh? I that's mean, my that, understanding. Yeah. That they're human languages. Yeah. From my looking at it, I, I think that's right as I best recall. There are, I don't think they're mystical languages or angelic languages. They're, they're known as human languages from the Greek anyway. Go ahead. Yeah. So when Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal, he's not being literal there. In that paragraph, Paul's using hyperbole to stress that love is of higher importance than spiritual gifts. You know? Okay. Because then he mentions... If it's, you have, it's, if, it's right where he starts out with 1 Corinthians 13. He, his whole He's setting the... The uh, theme right from the beginning of verse one that it's about love being yeah. the most important versus yeah. And he says if, if you have faith to move mountains, well, he's not saying literally move mountains. He's talking about great faith. Now, so on the day of Pentecost, right? We read that in Acts two. The disciples spoke in known foreign languages. Pentecost. Now, 
we saw the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, this crowd was a Jewish crowd. They were gathering for the Jewish holiday. They were made up of 15 different groups from diverse geographical linguistic backgrounds. Yeah. So we're talking about lots of different languages being spoken. Paul teaches that in a church setting, tongues must be interpreted. So I'm going to read a passage and add some emphasis in there. 1 Corinthians 14. For anyone who speaks in a tongue without interpretation does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, without interpretation, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. Verse 4. Anyone who speaks in a tongue without interpretation edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. And we read this before, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. So he's okay. really emphasizing unless someone interprets there. That, that's the key to this passage. So it seems very obvious to me that in church, if it's a known foreign tongue, that the interpretation is going to be a known a language and there's going to be a way of verifying it mm-hmm. and if it isn't that then that person well i know in other places paul instructs him that in first corinthians 14 i know he says you know just sit down it's not god so just yeah. sit down it's if it's you're not you speak a tongue somebody needs to interpret that tongue if you don't know the language if you do know the language why would you not just say it in English because everybody else in the group. I mean, it depends yeah, on where, which culture you're in. Speaker, yeah, yeah. That's, depends that's on which culture you're in. But the idea is that it is very verifiable, it sounds like, when you're in church. Mm-hmm. So that, and why is that so important? The interpretation is, in, is important so that the members are edified by the message being spoken. So they understand it. The interpretation of tongues is the supernatural ability to interpret a foreign language that is unknown to that person. That's how I understand it. There are over 7,000 languages spoken globally. That's today. A lot of languages. Someone speaks in a foreign language he does not know. Someone interprets the foreign language he does not know. If both a native speaker and an interpreter are present, they can verify translation and meaning. This edifies oh, okay. the church. Okay, this is all that stuff I just brought up. Okay. This is all the stuff, yeah. So, ideal star, you'd have like three people present, right? Someone speaking, someone interpreting, and a native speaker. To verify. Uh, that, would be, that would be sort of the greatest scenario. In verse 18, Paul makes a distinction between his church life and private life. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I have a clear question here. Yes. Does, is Paul also saying, based on that, is he also saying that I don't speak in tongues in church unless there's going to be an interpretation? Yeah, I think he says that above. Yeah. That there must be interpretation. Well, and, um, and that he's... He follows that example himself. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. clearly he speaks in tongues a lot, so it's 
It's clear Paul spoke in tongues in his private prayer life. It was a way to edify himself by speaking to God in prayer. Since interpretation is not required, the exact language being spoken is irrelevant. Because it's his private prayer life. Here are some of Caleb's guidelines for the gift of tongues. Speaking in tongues should never be used as sole evidence that someone has received the Holy Spirit because not everyone is granted that gift. Wow. So you don't, it isn't that you have, it's, it's not a sign that you've been born again because you started speaking in tongues because scripture bears out that we don't all have the gift of tongues. Yeah, exactly. And um, it, can, it can lead to abusing the gifts if a church teaches it that way, if that's their practice. The Sunday morning service is not the correct time to try out the speaking and interpretation of tongues. All speakers and interpreters well, should wait, be... Why is that the case, though? Sorry, I interrupted you, but <laughs> why is that a case that you shouldn't try it out on Sunday morning? Because I believe to maintain proper order that there has to be a hierarchy, that speakers and interpreters need to be approved by appointed members okay. versus people speaking out out of turn. There what is it? Isn't there order. another area, though, where you know, you're a non-believer and you come into this church and they're speaking in tongues mm-hmm. and nobody interprets it? What does that sound like to me? I mean, I'm like running for the exit because these are whacked. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just exactly. the way I yeah, right. the way I responded. It doesn't sound. Yeah. It doesn't right. sound no, like I, I mean, covers that. It, yeah. I, I'll be honest with you. I've been a believer for a long time, and when I have heard that, and I understand why they're doing it because they're edifying them. They're speaking prayer language to edify themselves. To me, it feels like it is such a, a distraction from why I'm there in the first place, which is to build other people and to be built up myself. Yeah. It's like self-centeredness in the church setting doesn't work the same way as it does in the private prayer language closet. Or so it seems like someone is showing off that they have the gift of tongues. It just completely takes me out of... It yeah. makes me think about them. It identifies themselves, yeah. It makes me think about why are they Why are they doing... What, what is this about? How is this building all of us up here? Because there's no interpretation. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm in church and I have... I feel like speaking in tongues. I would not just speak out, wait for a pause and speak out. I would ask the pastor or someone in authority, I'd like to share this. They would say, okay, we need an interpretation. This is the proper way of doing it. Okay, so those are the nine gifts. Now, I'd like to talk about non-apostles. We're going to get into some arguments here. Uh, not you and me. <laughs> um Non-apostles. It's worth noting that it wasn't just the apostles who displayed spiritual gifts. Other believers did too. Philip performed miracles. Stephen performed signs and wonders. Ananias restored Paul's sight. Agabus prophesied there would be a famine. Silas was a prophet. The Spirit empowers all members of the church with gifts, not just the twelve apostles. All right, we're going to talk about other spiritual gifts. Okay. Okay. There are additional spiritual gifts beyond the nine listed in 1 Corinthians 12. These are often called functional gifts. 
In Romans 12, Paul says that there's one church with many members, all with different functions. Paul says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. These are grace gifts, he says, which means that they come from God. Most believers would agree that serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, leadership, and mercy are still active gifts today. These gifts are intended to serve the well-being of the church and its members. Their continuation is in question because they're repeated residual gifts, yet they're still spiritual gifts. So, the idea of additional... They're repeated like, uh, I mean, they're just sort of ongoing administrative or residential gifts, as you yeah. said earlier. Yeah, residential gifts. Um, now, this idea continues in Ephesians 4. In this passage, Paul discusses how Christ has given spiritual gifts to believers for the purpose of serving and building up the church. Mm-hmm. You will see that as a common theme. Verse 7, But to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why God says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Paul is quoting Psalm 68:18 here. Verse 11, Paul says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Wow. Let's break that down. So these are also known as ministry gifts, these sort of titles. Jesus is the high priest and has the authority to give out these ministry gifts as he wishes. Like the functional gifts, the purpose of these gifts is to equip believers for works of service. Some people separate the gifts into two categories, supernatural gifts and natural gifts, but Paul doesn't separate them. They're all spiritual gifts. And the categories don't fully work because prophecy is included on all three lists, where we see gifts mentioned. To remain consistent, a sensationist would have to argue that all the spiritual gifts, including the ordinary ones, have ceased, not just the signs and wonders gift. And I wonder what their arguments are in that very statement you just made. I mean, I'd like to hear what they had to say. Curious. Yeah, they're they're categorizing the nine as like, these are supernatural miracle gifts. And they stopped. Yeah. Um, Why just those nine, though, like you said? (laughs) Like, why didn't they include all of them? To be consistent. Well, yeah. Well... Because the fact that they're teaching that means the gift of teaching continues. You know, <laughs> the fact that a pastor is saying it means pastoring continues. I, see. Um, I think you, that's a you great. You can't statement. get around the continuation of the other gifts. Right. It's a strong argument. Thank you. In First Corinthians thirteen, Paul says when the spiritual gifts were end, he tells us, Ralph. Oh, okay. This is key. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. 
where there is knowledge it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in parts, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. All right. So this is key. The gifts will end when completeness comes. Okay. What does that mean? Well, completeness, also known as perfection in some translations, occurs when Jesus returns. Wait, didn't completeness come when the canon was finalized at the Council of Nicaea? I think that's a bad <laughs> argument. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that you bring that out. But. Um, it's when Jesus returns. When Jesus returns yeah. to establish his kingdom, the spiritual gifts are no longer necessary. Yeah. But until that day comes, the church still needs to be built up. It feels like a very random statement to say when the canon was... First of all, it was mm-hmm. the, the canon pre-existed the Council of Nicaea. They just finalized it there. So yeah, at what point yeah. was were the gifts right. dead? And we don't even know that exact date. You know, it seems so weird. it was when yeah John wrote the last sentence of the last book. That's when yeah. it was completed. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah, so the church still needs to be built up until Christ returns. There's division because the church only has a partial revelation of God. But in the perfected state, there will be no division among believers. They will share in the fullness of God's wisdom and love. A similar point is made in Ephesians 4 when Christ gives the ministry gifts of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These gifts were given to build up the church until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Christ and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So when does this happen? Unity in the faith and knowledge of Christ. It will happen when Christ returns. Attaining the unity of the saints and a knowledge of Christ can never be fully realized while we're still living on earth in our sinful state. Okay, so, aside from the return of Christ, does the Bible give any other indication about when the gifts will cease? Cessationists can't identify a specific time. Yeah, that's what we were talking about. Yeah. They have guesses, like you mentioned. The gifts stopped when the last apostle died. But there were many non-apostles who had spiritual gifts, so they would have to die out as well for the gifts to fully cease. Uh, yeah. So as long as there's That's one never, person, I've never heard that brought up in the cessationist argument. Oh, I have. Uh, that no, I meant I've heard the first part, but I've never yeah. heard your statement that the what about the regular people who still were uh, commissioned with spiritual gifts? Right. As long as there's someone still practicing the gifts, they haven't died out. <laughs> They're good. They've continued. Or they might argue the gift stopped when the canon of scripture was completed, like you mentioned. But the assumption here is that the sole purpose of spiritual gifts was to authenticate the apostles as credible teachers of God's word. But if that were true, there would be no reason for non-apostles to have spiritual gifts. The emphasis would be entirely on the writers of canon. The scriptural gifts in no way compromise the finality of scripture. The spiritual gifts, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, they serve a different function. So that was the argument you mentioned about yeah. the completion of canon. All right, let's bring it home, Ralph. The church age is characterized by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the church age continues until Christ returns. 
The gifts encompass a wide array of supernatural manifestations. But whether they are miraculous, functional, or ministry roles, they are all gifts from God. When we operate in these gifts in accordance with God's will, God is glorified because the Father's heart is on display. As Paul teaches, let us pursue love as the highest aim, but let us earnestly seek spiritual gifts as a means of expressing God's love, wisdom, and power to a broken world. Nice. Now, I would like to thank two people, Sam Storms and Jack Deere. I watched many of their videos when putting this together. Do you have any final thoughts? I think you handled it real well. It's clear. Um, I'm sure there are side arguments and, and questions, but that's this is a great starting point. So thank you. I think uh, it's it's clear enough to where if I'm new to a church or as a Christian or follower of Jesus, I'm going. Well, this is a good foundation for helping me to understand some of these questions, especially if I'd known the Lord maybe a year and I had read the Word, uh, but I had these questions in my mind still, or or they should be questions in my mind at this yeah. point. Yeah, I think my my audience in mind was believers who believe in the spiritual gifts, but perhaps don't know the arguments for continuationism. Okay. With the gifts. So this, I'm hoping, can help equip believers to understand them. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I it's appreciate my it. pleasure. That was fun and uh, informative. Great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Until next time, this is Caleb and Ralph signing off. You know. Good night, everybody. Yeah. I just want to say, I just, one of these days, <laughs> I'm picturing Jay Vernon McGee. <laughs> Who? This is old radio dude that oh. has been around like 60 years ago. And mm-hmm. he, he said, until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. And I couldn't help but not hear you say that. I'm sorry. That's a good sign-off. I'll take it. May God richly bless you, my beloved. <laughs>